If we'd all take our seats, I will get started with the reading of God's Word. The message today that John Weathersby will be bringing is out of Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. If you wish to turn there, that would be great. At that time, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of the army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech, about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said that these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place will be, was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of the army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you for that reading. It's uh, hard to believe that we're already in the 21st chapter of the book of Genesis. I hope it's been a blessing of a study to you. I know it has been... Uh, to me, as many times as I've read the book of Genesis and studied it, um, it's always great to go back to the beginning um, and see all that God has done. I mean, God is on every single page of the book of Genesis. It is so incredible to see all that he saw through for his uh, sovereign plan to come together. Um, we see just absolute impossibilities coming together so that his sovereign will would be made clear and so that his, his perfect ability to see this plan through would just jump off the pages. And it should be encouraging to us that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so the same God who is Abraham's God is, is your God, is our God. And in fact, we get to know him through the complete revelation of God. We get to see all of the examples um, of God's interaction with people, we get to see the fulfillment of the plan of Christ. We get to see the future reality. We get to read the book of Revelation, which is a blessing when you open it. And so we should be encouraged to come back to the beginning and see how God planned all of it to occur. God, by his grace and his mercy, gives us this narrative in Genesis that documents the patriarchs. Uh, we get to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob against the backdrop of the creation account. God collapses so much time so that we can see all that he was doing. He gives us those things that we need to know in order to really see his plan coming together and taking shape. God's word gives us everything that we need. If you would, just quickly, I, I'm going to encourage you to flip to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
this, um, I don't have a life verse. I don't even really know what that means. It sounds spiritual, though. Uh, however, in my small collection of oft-repeated and favorite passages, 2 Timothy 3.16 is very high on the list of passages. It's instructive. It's life-giving. It's encouraging. And I would encourage you to... Um, I've heard uh, Pastor John Piper before refer to scripture memory as long swords and little daggers. This is a great little dagger for life. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness all scripture what a great encouragement to know that all scripture is breathed out by god the very breath of god is the scriptures he used people ordinary daily people sometimes leaders sometimes fishermen regular people powerful people to communicate his story using their own personalities using their own cultural backdrops and he still saw fit that it would come together with no error and accomplish every purpose that he has for it. The scriptures are incredible. They're internally consistent. In them, there is no error. Sometimes they could record error, but they don't make error. There are 39 books in what would be commonly referred to as the Old Testament, 27 books in what's commonly referred to as the New Testament, which make up our 66 books of the Bible. So when, when we read 2 Timothy 3.16, and it's talking about God breathing all of this out, that's inclusive of the book of Genesis and everything through to Revelation, all 66 books. Um, if you ever need something to do in addition to your scripture reading time, I would encourage you, there, you could do some study on the canon of scripture, just like the big gun is the idea, the canon of scripture, the measure of what is scripture and how did we come to realize that? How did that come together? Why are the books ordered the way they are? It's a really interesting study and something interesting to, to look into. With the, what's referred to as the Old Testament, we have the books of the law, the books of history, poetry, and prophecy. And in prophecy, you have major and minor prophets. And I have to share with you, some of my favorites are the minor prophets. I love the minor prophets. Very instructive, very rich. Um, Minor, just because they're a little bit shorter in length. And looking at the Old Testament in that way, sometimes when you're flipping through your Bible, that can help you find things, right, in the Bible. Help you find the address a little bit more quickly if you're not someone who can memorize the book order very easily. Or you have to sing a weird song. Um, you can think about what kind of book that is and kind of generally locate where that might be. The New Testament, similarly broken up with the Gospels. And the book of history, that would be the book of Acts which really is Luke-Acts, but in our Bible, the book of history is the book of Acts. So if you want to see how the church was built, you go to the book of Acts. That's the historical record there. Then we have the letters. We have prophecy, which is the book of Revelation, which I said is a blessing. And I said it's a blessing because it says it's a blessing. When you open the scrolls of this book, it's a blessing to study the book of Revelation. It's not just something that's studied when church attendance is low. Um, however, you do see that, right? The numbers are low, let's study Revelation. Everybody wants to read about demons and four-headed animals and seven-eyed goats. I mean, I used to look forward to it, teaching in children's ministry. I used to look forward to when we get to the book of Revelation once every three years uh, at the church that I served in in New Mexico um, because the coloring pages were awesome. Seriously. 
Like, you know, uh, I remember they had a snake with legs, and I was like, that's awesome. Because it does say that he was cursed to crawl in his belly and eat dust for the rest of his life, so perhaps the guy had legs. I don't know. I don't even like snakes crawling. The best thing you can do with a snake is hit it with a shovel, in my estimation. So a walking snake just weirds me out a lot a bit. You know, talking, get it. Bible was penned, folks would say, by some 40 authors, most of whom are named and known in here. A few not. Three continents. I mean, you think about what the scriptures is. It's the most incredible problem ever if it's not penned by, if it's not superseded by one author. It's not superseded by God. Why does it come together so well? 1,500 year span of time, 40 authors, three continents, internally consistent. You go back to any other book in history, and the copies of copies of copies are riddled with errors, but not the scripture. We have our, our complete scriptures built on a manuscript family, and then decades and decades and hundreds of years later, we find more in, this, in a cave in the 60s. Catholic Church locks them down, doesn't want to let anyone look at them. Finally, they come out. We see all of the scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls from the caves of Qumran, and we realize they're completely consistent with what we had before. The word is the most incredible thing that we have. And we should, we should love this word. We should love these 66 books. We should be chewing them up. I go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. It's breathed out by God. Of course it's without error. Its author is God. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training and righteousness. These are all the things that we should want and they're completely available to us in this book. We should not be able to write, read me in the dust on the cover. This thing should be worn. It should be used. You should know it. You know, it's so funny. You have a Bible for a certain amount of time. You get to the point where you can generally kind of flip to where the book is. You know, the, the glitting on the edges starts to get a little, a little funky, if you will. You have coffee stains on the pages. Uh, if you're like me, I've had this one since my children were little. And there's scribble marks, which infuriated me at the time on some of the pages, and now that they're in their 20s, it's kind of encouraging to go back and see. This word is the most amazing thing that we have. And it tells one story. It's a story from fall to redemption. And it records the fall so that we can understand ourselves. But it's all about redemption. It's all about Christ. It's all about all that God will do in Christ. We bring nothing to the table all we bring to the table is the need for Christ. A great need for mercy is what we bring. There's no work that we could do. We could never make a pile big enough of works to crawl our way to God. And he's never required that. He's never asked that of us. He's asked us to see that we need mercy and turn to him for that. From Genesis through Revelation. And so we approach the word rightly when we understand whose word it is. We approach it rightly when we understand whose word this is. This is God's word. This is the truth. And so when we come to it like that, we treat it differently. We don't come and say, well, let me inspect this and see if it's so. Now, we are encouraged in the world, in the word, to test all things. Um, Paul, when he celebrated the Bereans, celebrated them because they took what he said and then they compared it to the word to see if it was so. This is the barometer for truth. If you want to know what's true, go see what the scripture says about it. If the scripture is silent, you may want to check again, but if the scripture is silent, it may not matter. 
because this has everything that we need for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So we approach this Bible rightly when we understand whose word it is. So today, in Abraham, we see this continuation of a, of a long lesson of a man of faith, and we see this interesting pivot, I think, in, in Abraham's life. He's already spoken with this king before. It was a little bit different last time. If you recall, he comes into the land. He's a little bit afraid of what might happen with the king. He says to his wife, hey, lie and say that you're, you're just my sister. And the king becomes infuriated. We, you know, we talked through this. The king becomes infuriated with him and said, look, look what you almost made me do. God visited me in my dreams. There's been this great fall in the land. Why would you allow this to happen? And Abraham was a, a fearful man during that interaction. This is during the time right about before the promised child was going to be um, not born, but before the procreation of the, of the promised child um, was about the time that they were coming in and they met the king for the first time. So I think that we should be encouraged by the witness of faith of Abraham in his journey. And that should power us on to grow in our own faith. Um, because we're not just a point in time people. If we were just a point in time people and we weren't going to grow or, or grow in grace or grow in a likeness of Christ, perhaps God would just suck us believers out. Um, you know, we've got a twofold job on earth, threefold once we become a believer. Firstfold, become a believer. Everything else is irrelevant. Any prayer that you have when you're not a believer is irrelevant. The prayer that God wants to hear from you is one of repentance, um, to be in right relation with him. Uh, your, your next job then is to grow in the likeness and the image of Christ. Call it progressive sanctification, to grow in time. And then third is to make disciples is to make disciples, to teach others what you've been taught and continue this transmission of God's grace through faith. And if you won't, he'll find another faithful servant, but why would you not want to be that? Look quickly, if you will, with me at James chapter 2, verses 21 and 23. This, I love, anytime we get some insight from the scriptures on the scriptures, love that over anything else. So James chapter 2 provides us that in Abraham. James chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Abraham, in this story of the book of Genesis, is this living example of faith. A living example of justifying faith. And Moses is capturing this for us because it's important. He's capturing this line of the patriarchs through whom Christ will be born, through whom God will show himself strong, through whom God will, will, will satisfy so much of the, of the prophecy of how his plan will unfold. And so being given so much space to Abraham is incredible, and we should, we should desire to look at it. We should desire to ask, 
But God, if you're breathing this out for us to see how then is this profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training and righteousness, what should I see in the man Abraham? And so James gave us a small view here, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now we'll get to that story soon. I kind of want to dive in and talk about that, but I'll resist a little bit. Just see that when one of the things that we're supposed to see in Abraham is, is his faith. He's part of that great witness of faith that we'll read about in, in Hebrews and in several other places. And so God allows us to see this living illustration of a real man who lived, Abraham, as Moses captures this story of justifying faith. And we get to see God's word being oriented on the, the promise of the, of the, the, the pre-gospel, the proto-evangelion, if you want to sound cool, the pre-gospel so this, this first pronunciation of the gospel right after the fall, um, Adam and Eve both have decided to trust this serpent, you know, perhaps a, a walking and talking snake at this point. They've decided to trust him, questioning God's word over trusting God himself. And so they've, they've fallen. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we see the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat for the days of your life i will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel now imagine adam and eve in their perhaps belly buttonless state Hearing about offspring, you know, overhearing this conversation, God is talking to the servant saying, you have done this, I'll put enmity between the woman's seed and your seed. They're probably thinking, fresh creation here, don't know what's happening. God is speaking of things in the future, he is foretelling what will happen in the future, meaning he's saying, this is what I'm going to do, not guessing this is the outcome. Uh, I think, I think uh, Pastor John Nicholas mentioned he's not the, the watchmaker that winds everything up and then kind of predicts how it's going to unwind. He causes things to happen by his sovereignty. He doesn't guess the outcome and tell you what it is. He foretells what will happen. And here he shares the gospel in verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He's talking about the coming Messiah through whom salvation will be delivered. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talking about different degrees of, of injury. Head injury versus heel injury. He's talking about the gradation between what Satan will be able to accomplish and what Christ will accomplish. God is drawing a clear line to his son who will put enmity between the serpent and himself. Injured slightly, but no comparison to the damage that will come to Satan himself or the end that Satan would have. Satan's the great accuser. Satan has no power. He just wants everyone to be fallen along with him. He was profane, or excuse me, he was cast like a profane thing. And so because of that, gospel because of that truth of what god will do we we fast forward to the 
book of 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. You certainly can. You can write it down, look at it later. But the book of 1 Corinthians captures this concept so well in the 15th chapter, starting in the 55th verse. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That is such a great truth that Satan is powerless before a powerful God. It was Luther that said that the devil is God's devil. He's on a leash. He's on a chain. He can go thus far and no farther. We know that because you see it in the book of Job. God tells him, you can, you can go this far, but you can't touch his health. And then later he says, okay, now you can touch his health. And certainly he does that. We see Job with boils, with worms inside, and everything awful. God is in complete control, and he calls us to himself through his son savingly. Why would we do anything but make that plain choice? So let's look at this saving faith of Abraham in Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 22. And what we want to capture as we go through is, why is God sharing so much of this story? Why are we now able to see this second interaction with the king? And what's different? What is different? Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Um, uh, Pastor John Nicholas and I, talking to uh, Roy recently, asked him to take the book of Ruth, the first chapter, and make just 20 observations about that chapter, and then take 20 questions about that chapter. Don't research them, don't do it, just write them down. And that's one of the first things I do when I come to a text, is observations and questions. And one of the first things that caught my eye is, it says, at that time, Abimelech, and I'm thinking, well, at what time? Because the story that we just came off of seems like a strange place to then encounter uh, this connection with, with the king and the commander of his army. Um, and so, anyway, I would encourage you, when you come to a passage, when you're reading, right, sometimes you do what I call plow reading, and that's, that's okay. Uh, maybe, you know, I read sometimes the McShane plan, which uh, the McShane plan's great. Had you read four chapters a day from the scriptures in a year, you'll read the whole Bible plus the Psalms and Proverbs twice. But four chapters can be a lot. You know, you, you get into some of these chapters and you're like plowing, you're pushing. Sometimes I like to do a really slow read. I'm not reading the Bible in a year, I'm just reading something for my own edification. Maybe it's a book, maybe it's a chapter. But when I come to something and I really want to dig in, that's one of the first things I do. It's like, what are some observations about this? What are some questions that I might ask about this? And then just start to research them. It gives you a place to really dig in a little bit more deeply. Maybe you've heard someone that's teaching before and you thought, man, how did they, how did they get that? That's probably how. Or they stole it from someone else. Either of the case. I guess. At that time. Uh, so some would, some, some would say then that uh, that's probably picking up from chapter 20 from the first meeting uh, with Abimelech. Some translators have gone with a little bit of a different construction. Rather than saying at that time, they say, now it came. Uh, you see that in the uh, NASB and the NASB and the LSB both said, now it came. Probably trying to avoid that immediate connection to the last place that you were, you were dropped off. 
Um, and so what we have is we have Abimelech the king and Phicol the commander um, of the army. Maybe he is functioning here as a witness. Maybe he's a bodyguard to the king, right? I think, I think they're actually a little bit nervous about Abraham at this point. They've seen all of his possessions. Um, at this point, he, you know, he probably has enough of a, of, a, of a people group around him that really he has functionally has his own army, his own ability to lean back and not be toppled over by a king. Um, and so I think they're a little bit nervous of him. Um, here, Abimelech recognizes that God is with Abraham in all that he does. And this is an important observation. You have this Philistine king who looks at Abraham Maybe he, maybe he looks at Abraham's life. Um, if you think back to Genesis chapter 20, um, God comes to the king, and then he ends up ha- saying that Abraham is a prophet. Abraham ends up praying for the king, and perhaps they saw outcomes from that prayer. And so now the king is saying, God is with you in all that you do. Maybe he's just looking at all of the insane amount of livestock he has. I mean, we, we see that in, the, in, in um, the children of Israel during their uh, enslavement in Egypt. They, they, said they just keep producing People, children, so fast. We've got to stop them from doing that. When God's hand of blessing is on something, we see it just exploding at times for God's glory and for his purposes. And so he says that God is with Abraham in all that he does. That's a common theme that we see in the the line of the patriarchs. You'll see that mentioned um, in Genesis chapter 26 and verse 28. Um, we see that mentioned. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Um, that's of Isaac. We see it spoken of Jacob in Genesis chapter 30. But Laban said to him, if I found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. We see it spoken of, Je- of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. And verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. All of these people from these unbelieving nations see the markers of God on these people's lives. Um, It's almost like, you know, during the plagues, we talked about the plagues this morning during Sunday school. It gets to a point where the magicians are able to do, you know, their kind of weird things and kind of keep up with God. And then finally they say the, the, the one thing, right, as Jim mentioned this morning, the one thing that they see said they they report back. Now that's that's got the very fingerprint, the very thumbprint of God on it. So these unbelieving people are seeing God on the patriarchs. Now, how about us? I think sometimes we start to become really, really impressed by the patriarchs themselves, rather than the God that's pushing all of this through, rather than the God whose plan is playing out through them, rather than the God who's showing himself strong in all that happens in their lives. If the patriarchs were left on their own, they would mess this thing up. How many times was Abraham rescued by God? I mean, the whole, the whole situation with the first time he encounters the king. God comes in, steps into this situation because of the way that Abraham handled it, and really saves the day, if you will. Comes to the king with a, with a message and a dream, terrifies him, says, look what you almost made me do. Without God intervening, without God having a, a, a vision and a purpose for all of this, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have seen through. And so it's important and interesting that we see each of the patriarchs being recognized by otherwise unbelieving people as having the mark of God 
on their lives. Even this Philistine king can see it. And that's a, a, a long shot from what the king recognized him in previous interactions. He went from lying about who his wife was to now we'll see in the, in the following verses that in some sense he kind of stands on his own legs, if you will, before the king. He stiffens up his back. His intestinal fortitude grew. Verse 23. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Again, I, I said I think perhaps Abimelech feels threatened coming to Abraham with this almost proactive peace treaty, this friendly living treaty, looking to extend it out through generations. He must realize the trajectory that Abraham is on here is one that makes him great, one that leaves him with so many possessions. I mean, we already saw back in the day with Lot when they separated, the herdsmen were arguing so much among one another because they couldn't even dwell together with all that they have. They have, at this point, animals of all kinds. Um, you know, they're this kind of a moving operation, if you will. Maybe they're chasing down water sources. Maybe they're chasing down pastures, uh, living in, in kind of leather tents, having camels and donkeys and sheep and all of these. I mean, that's a heck of an operation to be moving around. And you've got to have some smart people. Um, you know, you, you think about the, the kinds of knowledge that agrarian people have. Uh, it, it's pretty deep. Like, we'd be in trouble on our own. Most of us think that beef comes atop a styrofoam with plastic over it, right? If you had to kill a cow, you probably wouldn't even know which end to start with, uh, most of us. If you can't go to the grocery store, we'd probably die within weeks. If fresh water didn't come pouring out of the tap, we'd just be in trouble. You know, if I couldn't go to the store and, and buy sugar-free chemical water um, or a granola bar, honestly, we would probably most shrivel away and die. Except for those of us who can steal from the rest. And uh, we would live a little longer. But these folks knew how to travel around and, and flourish and flourish but not to miss the fact that they were incredibly blessed by God. I mean, I really love that you've got Lot and Abraham standing there, and, and Lot scans the ground, looks to the fertile ground, says, I'll go that way. Abraham says, I'll just go whichever way. Trust God. Verse 24, Abraham said, I will swear. <laughs> I mean, that was quick, right? He didn't say, like, I'm gonna, let me take this back to the lawyers. We're going to read the agree agreement over. Let me see if there's any strange loopholes in here. Abraham said, I will swear. Maybe the king didn't ask anything that a, that a godly man would struggle to deliver. Maybe in that moment, Abraham thought, yep, I don't hear anything troubling here. My plan was not to overthrow your kingdom. I'll swear that. And it, we would do well then to consider Romans chapter 12 and verse 18. There's this uh, kind of a godly principle there. And again, I, I want to be able to provide us from the full revelation of God, perspective backwards, knowing, of course, that Abraham did not have this perspective, um, but that the, the, the principles are still godly and true. So uh, for us who live today, we, we, we do have the benefit of having the full revelation of God, the full breath of all that God would have for us to know how to live godly lives. 
Um, and so Romans chapter 12 in the 18th verse reads like this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So what does this mean that maybe we shouldn't desire to be contentious or people who are looking to pick a fight, right? So believers, we should kind of have this general mark about us. We're not out trying to be antagonistic towards the world around us. We're not just looking to argue about anything that someone would argue with us. But there are some cautionaries here. Um, it says as much as possible, which if you read that kind of from the negative would, would, would assume that it's not always going to be possible. Uh, it's not always going to be just because of you that you either live peaceably or don't live peaceably. There will be times where people won't live peaceably with you because of what you believe, because of what you know, because of what the word says, and perhaps they disagree. And so when the world disagrees with what the word says, the world is wrong. The world is completely wrong. And that's opportunities for us to be both salt and light. Um, that's opportunity for us to say what is true and what is right. Uh, in, in, the, in the face of a, of a lie, especially a lie that goes against God, we don't just go with it to live at peace. We speak for truth. And sometimes that may cause discomfort. Um, consider, you know, our, the, the recent history of, of government reaching into churches and making a statement of value that worship isn't critical during the three-year COVID flu season. However, you can go to the grocery store as long as you follow the arrows around the building. Um, you could take your, you know, you could, this one used to kill me. You can go out as adults wearing masks and watch people with infant babies being pushed around because it's important to buy cocoa puffs as a family. It, it just, it, it really didn't stand up to what was happening around us, perhaps, in my estimation. I'm not saying you have to see that as true. Um, however, government making a value statement that for three years churches should not gather stands against what the book of hebrews says about not forsaking the gathering of the saints when, when we looked around and we saw that people really are kind of living through this thing maybe there's smart ways to deal with it um, we then stand against government and say no you don't actually get to make up all of these kinds of rules government is to be reflective of its people and so when the christian people stop speaking up the government becomes not Christian, non-Christian, not reflecting any Christian value whatsoever, which is actually really, really bad for the world. And so it's important that Christians speak for what is true. And so there are times when living outside of peace is important. And so we see in verse 25, perhaps one of these times come up for Abraham. He agrees to the terms. He says, yes, I'm going to, of course, live at peace with you. I'm not looking to be contentious. However, he speaks up for what is perhaps his right. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. Now consider Abraham of, of chapter 20, who was terrified of the king, now reproving the king because his servants had taken over a well he dug in the land that the king allowed him to sojourn. Quite the difference. Genesis chapter 20, verses 10 and 11. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? This is Abimelech saying, why did you tell me that your wife was your sister? 
Verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So how did he go from a man who thought there's no fear of God and these people are going to kill him to reproving the king for using his well? Now imagine the importance of a well. You're a nomadic people. You've got these huge herds. You can't just take all these huge herds and all of these peoples and families and babies and bring them down to a puddle of dirty water to drink. You need a real water source. And so they dug one and someone took it from them. This is problematic for Abraham and for all of the people over whom he's responsible. And so he stands up to the king for his rights. He doesn't just get bowled over. I think as Christians, sometimes we've had people cherry pick and tell us what we must be. We've had people cherry pick from the word and say, well, you, you really, you just have to like, just your, your back has to be made of rubber. You just have to bend over and let people do whatever they want to you. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And when you don't do that, then you're not a Christian. And the world doesn't get to define for the church what the church is to be. In fact, the world doesn't know what the church is to be because that is defined by God in his word and they are ignorant of the word because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so the next time someone tells you what you must do to be a Christian, ask them to show you in the word and ask if you can look at that together. There's no point arguing conclusions with a dead person. Go to the word. And so it's an interesting juxtaposition that we see in Abraham, who has now been recognized as being with God, a man who had experienced visitation from God, who had all the markers of God's provision on him through possessions and probably just the the. the, the speed at which his tribe of people, if you will, was increasing, his number of possessions, the animals and the livestock were increasing. And now, the promised son delivered to him through just absolute calamities to two old people. It's just God written all over it. Verse 26, Abimelech says, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard about it until today. The king's kind of on his heels here. He doesn't say, Abraham, how dare you bring this up to me? Who are you? He's speaking to the man who he's recognizing that God is with him, who God has visited, who God has had Abraham pray for as prophet and outcomes have occurred. So fair, right? He's a king probably over lands and has tons of people out kind of doing their thing. And so there's been some strife between Abraham and his people and the king and their people. And the king's people stole a well that he dug. So Abraham, in a sense, makes a, a legal argument against this, up and against this new treaty that they're making right now to keep the peace for a possession that should be rightly his. He stands up. He stands up in the face of government, if you will. That, I think, is an important observation from Abraham, a, a, a bold demand from a man who, whose God is the Lord, and his rights then are being extended to him through government or decree or law. We have similar rights now, right? The government is to protect the people, our government anyway, our form of government. 
is designed to protect the people that it represents. And we are to be citizens of our kingdom, not subjects of our kingdom. Um, I think sometimes you look around and it feels like, you know, our posture is supposed to be as subjects of the kingdom. As you wish, my Lord, were to say, I feel sometimes, but that, that is not what it means to be an American. We'll throw your tea in the water and shoot at you. It's a different form of government. It's supposed to represent the will of the people. And so as the will of the people begins to perhaps shift, it's important for those who believe to stand up for the will of God, to stand up for the will of themselves so that the government would still be reflective of the whole of the people. Now, maybe God does not bless that. Maybe the will of the people shifts and uh, you know, we continue revening as a godless nation who lives to just do whatever it is that we're doing, uh, have absolute freedom to murder babies, and maybe we just go away soon because we don't even procreate anymore. I'm not sure. But for now, I think it's important for Christians to stand up and speak, and I think we see that here in Abraham. Even more important as the population becomes open to anything but godly living, it's important for the Christians to interject back into a lost and dying public square with godly principles. But always looking to find balance of living peaceably, looking to find balance with being salt and light. Um, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put, take a light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light for the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think it's important to remember when we're, we're living as light, when we're sharing truth, that true information, that truisms, that truth and godly truth are sometimes just an inroad to the gospel. They're not the end of themselves. So what I mean by that is sometimes you're going to share a truth about some topic. Um, you know, think abortion or marriage. Really, our responsibility for any apologetic is then to be able to share the gospel. Say, but really the good news is about Christ, because that's what's life-giving. That's what changes people's lives. Not, we don't study the scriptures so that we know how to have a better democracy. We study the scriptures so that we better understand Christ and God's will for life. And so I think Abraham exemplifies this kind of balance of living in a gray world, because that's where we are. It's not black and white. Oftentimes, someone's not right or wrong. Maybe they're a little bit of both. Um, we, we run into complicated topics in the world today, right? It's never quite as easy as either side perhaps describes it, and so it's even more important to be deep in the word, to be deep in prayer. And I think Abraham exemplifies that kind of balance. Um, truth and winsomeness. Neither of those things exist in a void. I think for so long the church has existed in this, what they call a church growth era, whatever that, or I think that's what it was called. I saw, you know, goobers like uh, Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, all these kinds of guys that are just about how many people can we stuff in a room? 
how watery can we make the word so that people feel comfortable enough and they're giving and we can pay salaries. And so the church has enjoyed a period of doing that, right? Buying bubble machines and smoke and great stereos and building concert quality worship teams and has ignored the word and ignored the gospel and as such really has allowed decades to peter away while people's biblical knowledge has eroded to some kind of a kindergarten level nothing of importance nothing of substance and so i think it's even more important now for believers today to know what they know and to be able to talk about the word to be able to talk about the gospel to be able to share who is christ and to have a solid perspective as the world around us goes frankly insane it's important to be able to be salt and light so much of this church growth movement has been focused on not rocking the boat or causing friction that christians have come to believe that we're just to agree with whatever people around us say so that nobody gets mad at us like we just want everybody to like us so much because we think if they like us and they believe that what we believe already agrees with them, then they'll be our friend and they'll come to our neat church and they'll also give and everybody will get paid. And that's what the church has been reduced to. And it isn't good and it certainly does not glorify God. If anything, it's lukewarm and Christ said he spits that out of his mouth. Christ who came with a sword. Imagine yourself, if you will, for a moment, if there was something wrong with your mind and you wanted to do this. Imagine you're a congressperson and you're debating abortion. You know that the truth must be shared. Abortion is what it is. It's, it's murder. A life has ended. The world, people of the world non-believers and increasingly quote believers would say that that you have done injury to them and they would stake a claim against your winsomeness they would say that you weren't nice and in order to be a christian everything that you do must die for the cause of nice you must never make anyone feel ungood your job is to fluff people up and make them feel fantastic at all times or you're not a believer how could there be any real conversation? How could you have any debate? How could you talk about the topics if all you want to do is fluff people up and make them like you? You can't be intellectually honest on anything. You can't disagree. Um, there, there's a, a wonderful book that was written years back, which became even more important than I think the author, certainly myself, ever would have thought. Uh, it's called The Intolerance of Tolerance, where he said that the definition of tolerance itself is shifting. Tolerance used to mean two people disagree, and they say, that's okay, we can still exist. Now, tolerance demands that you completely agree with the side that has no moral mooring whatsoever, or they will destroy everything about your life. They will take your job, they will take your livelihood, they will take your place in society, you will be doxxed. This is what it means to be tolerant now. It sounds like intolerance intolerant of anyone who doesn't agree with no moral mooring having any moral position today is being quote intolerant which is silly language is being completely redefined around us and you can't even have true where language is dishonest and so i say it's important for the christian to stand up 
for Christian faith not to be lukewarm, to be willing to be, yes, salt, but also light. Both need to be true. So Abraham brings up this issue of the well. Abimelech claims no knowledge until right now, verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen, and he gave them to Abimelech and to the two men, and the two men made a covenant. Covenant, covenant. What's that? Verse 28. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? Abraham swore this oath, right? Remember, his immediate reaction was like, sure, I agree, to your terms. Brings up the well. They start going through the motions of this covenant, and then Abraham does one other thing. He takes the seven ewe lambs, and he puts them off to the side. And the king's like, wait, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Consider the wisdom of giving a gift to the king in their culture. It would be common. So just pre-assuming this gift makes sense. And so I think sometimes it's funny. We come on things like this and we think, well, we're a culture. We don't do gifts. We don't do bribes. Oh, yes, you do. Let me, I'll assure you of the way that this world works. Uh, is all around gifts and bribes and access. Uh, Proverbs 18, 16 says, A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. You ever come over to somebody's house for dinner? Generally speaking, you don't walk in the door empty-handed. You bring something with you, right? You bring a gift, a little bit smaller scale. Consider super PACs. Um, you know, super PAC, maybe you work for a big company. They're involved in some super PAC, which means a little bit of money from everybody's paycheck goes in this massive pile. And so now they have influence over that political party or that leader. Happens a lot. Or lobbyists, you know, you pay $5,000 a month, $10,000 a month, whatever, a month for access. It's how the government works. We do it today. And so Abraham does similarly. He takes the seven ewe lambs off to the side. He says, I'm preserving these off to the side to give to you because remember the well issue? I'm just, I'm gifting you these. Abraham's intentions are tied back to the well. Uh, Beersheba comes up frequently in this family line history. It's contended over. We'll see that later. There's a meeting with Isaac, Abimelech, and Phicol, ironically, in chapter 26 where he has to redig the well in the land of the Philistines after his father's death. So this is not once and done kind of a thing. Um, there's some wordplay that's happening here on, on this promise the, uh, around the word seven, or the, excuse the word, the number seven. Um, it's kind of close to the word to swear um, that's, that, that is being used around the covenant. Moses is making sure that this this number, number seven, maybe a biblical number of completion, that it catches our eye. You saw it in verse 28, you saw it in verse 29, you saw it in verse 30, and now in verse 31, there's some wordplay on the number seven, verse 31. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there, both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Uh, Beersheba is the well of seven, or the oath of seven, maybe You've got a little footnote, a little number, or a little letter there on Beersheba in your text. It'll talk about that below. Um, Moses is making sure our eye is drawn to this. And as the careful Bible student you, ha you are, you may have noticed that Genesis chapter 21 and verse 14 referred to the place where Hagar went with Abraham uh, and her and their son in their wilderness as Beersheba, which is interesting because it wasn't really named that yet, right? Uh, I assure you the scripture is not broken being told by Moses, who came many years later and knows of this area as being called 
Beersheba. It's like when we're up here and we're talking about Abraham and Sarah, we don't always think about where am I in this story so I can call them Abram and Sarai. I mess that up all the time. I try not to, but I do. I just say Abraham and I just say Sarah. Something similar with referring to Beersheba before this covenant happens, before it becomes Beersheba, before it becomes sworn on an oath of seven for the seven ewe lamb. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a harvest tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Abraham is advanced in his years at this point. You certainly could have said that at any other point, seemingly. You know, he's, he's a hundo plus. Um, maybe he's allowed to settle down a little bit, but the scriptures help us see that he still sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. He still wasn't in the promised land. He still wasn't settled in home. God was still caring for him. God was providing for him. It was amazing, really, that he's living here like this in this land. But still gets to set, set roots maybe a little bit more. He's kind of planted this, this grove, if you will. And he calls on the name of the everlasting God. Keeps us aware that Abraham's faith is in the future. And his trust and his hope are in God's provision and God's future promise. And we've seen that change him. We've seen him go from a guy who's terrified of the king to a guy who reproves the king. There's something about knowing that God's in control of everything that changes you. It makes you see everything differently in the world around you. Not be haphazard, but it makes you see it differently and understand it differently and experience it differently. And for us, as we read these 66 books that are everything we need to know for life, doctrine, reproof, training in righteousness, we should be encouraged by the same because we don't have to experience all of it. We know it's breathed out by God. We know it's completely true. We should be just as impressed as if we'd experienced it. But we get to experience all of it, not just locally, individual tastes here and there. We get to see the full counsel of God's revelation and all of these amazing things that came together from Genesis through Revelation to see his plan through, and that should encourage us. Saving faith and justifying faith, it's the same root. It's all found on the promise of God's word. And so we should be encouraged by the book that we have, be encouraged by Abraham's faith, but more than that, be encouraged by the power of God, the sovereign God, his plan for salvation and his grace and his power that flows through Abraham. Someone, sometimes in spite of Abraham, and certainly I know from my own experience, often in spite of me, God's grace is present and active. Maybe you need encouragement in the, the uh, broken gray world that calls on you. Maybe you need to seek balance of salt and light. Be encouraged by Abraham whose trust was in God and do the same. Seek peace where possible, where it depends on us, but stand for truth. How do we know truth? These 66 books. That's it. That's all we need is these 66 books. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. You're merciful and graceful to give it to us so that we can see truth, so that we can have the, the fullness of your revelation of life, but God, more than that, so that we can know you and so that we can know you savingly, so that we can see your power 
and your mercy and your grace all in balance. God, you're, you're wonderful. I pray that you encourage us who believe to be both salt and light. Help us to find that balance. God, make us struggle with it. Not just be placated and assuming we're doing that, but God, to really seek after the balance that Jesus himself was talking about in Matthew 5. God, for those who don't believe this morning, or maybe they believe but are not yet repentant of sin, would you break them this morning, God? Would you allow them to see that your desire is for them to repent and trust Christ, not themselves, and that you then implant your spirit in them and take care of all of the growth from that point that they just get to participate. God, would you do that work in someone today? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.